Why is the Lord's Supper significant? Mark chapter 14 is where we are at this morning. Mark chapter 14. Um, let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive in to today's message. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a church, Lord, to participate in the supper together, to learn about the Lord's Supper and why it is significant in the life of the church. And God, be with us as we walk through this text. Lord, help us to understand uh, what it is that we participate in when we take the Lord's Supper and what we are proclaiming, what we are putting our hope in. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was listening to a sermon the other day, and, and the pastor made an, an interesting observation about the founders of the world's major religions. All the founders of the world's major religions, they, they died in old age. They died in, in comfort and relative blessing. Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, even, even Moses, all died in old age. But that is not true of Jesus. Jesus' life and death was much, much different. He died young. He died naked. He died in agony, crying out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? And the question that raises is, who seeing that? Who, who hearing that about Jesus would say, That's the message for me. Jesus is the spiritual leader that, that I want to follow, the person in whose footsteps I want to walk. Who is going to say that? Who would choose to follow Jesus? His life doesn't promise comfort. His life doesn't promise old age. It does not promise worldly blessings. Most people would naturally choose to follow the persons whose life gave them all of those things. Naturally, we want comfort. Naturally, we want blessing. Naturally, we want a long life. Now, that's not necessarily sinful. It actually points to the gospel. It points us to a future hope. That being said, it's not something that is going to be a reality in this world. But our natural desire for these things, comfort and blessing and, and long life, is not necessarily wrong. It is actually a gospel hope. But here's the thing. While Jesus' death was much different than the other leaders, and many people would not naturally choose to follow him, his suffering and death transformed the lives of those in the ancient world, as well as it transforms the lives of those today. It didn't just happen in Jesus' day, it's still happening today. Now why did that happen? Why did Jesus' death and, and why did his suffering transform the ancient world like it did? Why does it transform today's world like it does? Well, the answer is people's lives were changed if they grasped the understanding of Jesus' death that He gave at the Supper. That means that, that the Lord's Supper is significant. But why? Why is the Lord's Supper significant? Well, in order for us to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper, we've, we've got to look backwards at history. We've got to look at Jesus. And then we've got to look forward to a future hope so we're going to look at those one at a time first we're going to look backward at history which brings up the question in which event is the lord's supper grounded in which event is the lord's supper grounded well in mark chapter 14 jesus disciples they were beginning to prepare for the passover meal and they wanted to know jesus well, where do we go and prepare this passover meal so look at verse 12 with me 
On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, not only does, does this question that they ask set up a, a time reference, but, but it also links us back to a, a past event that took place. And that time reference is past event is the day of, or the feast of unleavened bread. Now, as you can imagine, the time reference is important. It serves to connect us back to the Passover event. It serves to connect us back to the Exodus. And in order for us to understand that event, the Exodus event, to understand the significance of the Passover and the life of the Jews, we need to go back to the life of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph's brothers, they despised Joseph because his, he was his father's favorite. Determined to get rid of him, they ended up selling him into slavery. But God gave, but God had this greater plan for Joseph. He, he did not desire that Joseph would be enslaved for the rest of his life. Instead, in God's providence, Joseph rose up through the ranks and he eventually became second in command in Egypt. I mean, these things just don't happen, but this happened in the life of Joseph. He goes from someone who's sold into slavery all the way to the second in command in Egypt. The only person who was greater than Joseph was the Pharaoh. Now we kind of fast forward, I'm fast forwarding through this story. There's all kind of other details that, that I'm leaving out. And so you can go back and read this in the book of Genesis. But, but through the course of time, this famine takes place in the land. And, and all of these people begin to come to Egypt to get food. Because Joseph had placed this food in, in the storehouses and he's selling it to all of those who are around in the land. And Joseph's brothers end up coming to get some food. And, and they don't recognize Joseph, but, it's, but, it's, but he recognizes them. And instead of killing them, because Joseph certainly did have the power to do that, he provided them with food, he forgave them, and then on top of that... He also brought his family to live in the fertile land of Goshen. There in the land of Goshen, the nation of Israel, they grew tremendously. They grew into this large, massive nation. Now by this time, Joseph is, is dead. The, the Pharaoh whom Joseph served under is, is dead as well. They've both passed on. But the new Pharaoh, this, this concerned him. He sees this large, fertile nation growing there. And he gets worried. They're going to attack us. They are going to overtake us. They are going to enslave us. I better do something about this before that happens. And so he acts first. He enslaves them. And the Pharaoh was not a, a merciful taskmaster at all. Instead, he was ruthless and, and he was cruel. He treated them terribly. And the Israelites did the only thing that they could do at this time. They cried out to God to rescue them. And God heard their cries and God sends Moses and God sends Aaron to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. Now at first Moses goes and he, and he goes to Pharaoh and he, and he says, Pharaoh, I want you to let this people go. And Pharaoh is like, who is this guy, Moses? I mean, who is this God that, that you speak of that they serve? I am not letting them go. Well, God through Moses and through Aaron kind of ratchets up a bit because Moses did not consent and sent ten plagues on the nation. These plagues were terrible, but they didn't change 
in Moses's, I mean Pharaoh's mind. And seeing that the Pharaoh wouldn't budge, God determined to send this one last plague. And before the plague, he gave these special instructions, the instructions that you heard read uh, during our scripture reading time from Exodus chapter 12. God, through Moses and Aaron, told the people, all those who would listen, this includes the Israelites and the Egyptians as well, to take a one-year-old lamb, to sacrifice it at twilight. Afterwards, they were to, to take some of the lamb's blood, they were to put it on the doorposts and the, and the lentils, and then they were to eat the lamb, and they were re to ready themselves. That night, God would send the destroyer through the land and all of those who had the blood on their doorpost, the destroyer would literally pass over that house. And then when he came to a house that did not have the blood on the doorpost, he would enter in and he would take the life of the firstborn son. And that night, Pharaoh lost his firstborn son. In a fit of rage, he commands the Israelites to leave, to get out of the land. And that event is known as the Exodus event. The Exodus event is talked about all throughout Scripture. And God commemorated in what is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Each year, on the day that it happened, the Israelites were to celebrate God, freeing them from Egypt by slaughtering a lamb and eating it. And that is the meal that the disciples were wanting to prepare for them to eat and Jesus sent them to make preparation. So we pick back up in verse 13. We read down to verse 16. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now all of this tells us then that the Lord's Supper, which occurred the night uh, they celebrated the Passover meal, is grounded in the Passover event. Now why is that significant? Why did Jesus choose to institute what we know today as the Lord's Supper this night? Well, the answer lies in the elements. The bread and the wine reveal why he chose that night. And so looking at Jesus raises the next question. To what event do the elements point? After Jesus and his disciples came to the house where the Passover meal was prepared, they reclined at table and, and they began to eat. And, and we read this as if this is what, is what is supposed to happen. I mean, now Jesus' disciples did ask where they would prepare the Passover meal, but, but this is a little bit different than what would normally take place. Typically, the physical family would gather together. The eldest father would, would preside over the meal, but, but that's not what takes place here, is it? Jesus has gathered together with his disciples. Jesus has, has pulled his disciples away from their families to be with him during this time, during this meal. Jesus is acting as the head of the family. And this is why we can call one another brothers and sisters. You see, in the Lord, as Christians, we enter into a family with one another. A family with Jesus as our head. And it's important to understand we are family because family watches out for and looks after one another. Family cares for one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to look out for one another. 
And you, you see, as you read through the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, you, you may have heard that, that, that they, had, they had these one another's all throughout the New Testament as you read. And, and he tells us how we are to look out for and, and how we are to minister to one another. And that's what we do as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We minister to one another. Which means that, that we shouldn't just have cursory relationships with those in the church. I mean, we are, we are family. Family knows one another. Family cares for one another. And in order to know one another, in order to care for one another, we have to invest in one another's lives and we extend that care to the other person. You see, the Lord's Supper reveals and points to the fact that, that we are we are family. And when you join a church, you, you say, I want to be a part of that local expression of the local church, of that local family. You are covenanting, you are committing to gather with that local family, with those people, and you are, you are committing to then look out for and to treat them as family. And it all happens because of Jesus. But the supper... And their meal together also points to much more. As, as they were eating, Jesus, he, he takes this bread and He blesses it and He broke it and He gave it to His disciples. And so far in the course of the meal, nothing out of the ordinary besides them gathering together as family outside of their lo- normal family has, has taken place. Nothing out of the ordinary. The person presiding over the meal would normally take the bread. He would, he would break the bread and pass it out to those there. But what happens next? is different the normal script would be for the presider to say this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness he's pointing back to the exodus event he's commemorating that event but that's not what jesus says look at verse 22 and as they were eating he took the bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to them and said take This is my body. See, Jesus changes the script. Instead of applying the bread to the affliction to those in the wilderness that they experience, Jesus applies it to himself. He refers to the affliction he is going to experience on the cross. But Jesus is not not done yet. Look at what he says in 23 and 24. And he took the cup. We had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Notice what Jesus does. He he applies the wine to himself as well. He says, This represents my blood, the blood that has been poured out for a new covenant. A covenant that is referred to not just as any old covenant, but a new covenant, a covenant that is unlike the old covenant. Instead of it being a covenant centered on the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrifices that were made there in the temple in Jerusalem, this covenant is centered on Jesus and Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. You see, Jesus was about to face his own affliction. Jesus was about to face his own suffering at the hands of the Jewish authorities. He would be beaten and he would be whipped. A crown of thorns would be pressed down on his head as as blood streams down his face and all over his body. Then he's nailed to a cross as the crowds jeered at him. And finally, after his death, his 
His side would be pierced by a spear. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. This wasn't a mystery to Jesus. He and the Father had planned this from eternity's past before the foundations of the world were even created. They had planned that Jesus would come and Jesus would die. And the reason Jesus' body would be broken and His blood would be spilt was the same reason the Passover lamb was killed, to pay the price that we owe, to take our punishment, to pay our debt. You see, we are sinners who deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be punished, and the punishment that we deserve is death. And this punishment was instituted by the first Adam. You see, in the garden, God made a covenant with, with Adam. And he said, listen, you can have everything here. This, this entire garden paradise is yours to enjoy. I also want you to be second in command. You're, you're going to be the, the little K king over this entire world. You're going to exercise dominion on my behalf. You're going to work it and you're going to keep the land. The one thing though, there's one covenant stipulation that he says not to eat of the tree. Don't eat of this one tree. Everything else, enjoy. Have dominion over everything else. Don't eat of this one tree. To show that they trusted in the Lord. To show that they recognized that God was the one who was in control. And what did they do? In the course of time, Eve was deceived by the snake and she deceived her husband and they ate of the tree. They ate of the fruit of the tree. They rebelled against God. They broke the covenant and they earned death. And since they are the representative couple of the human race, we all face the same penalty. We all owe the same debt because of our sin. But remember, Jesus' blood instituted a new covenant. A covenant centered on Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. He came and died in our place so that we might experience life. On the cross, the Father's wrath was poured out in Jesus, on Jesus in our place. As He hung there, he, he acted as our substitute. He was our representative. He experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. He experienced the death that we deserve. And then Jesus resurrected from the grave. And Jesus centers these elements on Himself. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper to commemorate the sacrifice that He has made for us. To commemorate the rescue that, that He provides for us. Rescue from sin. This, this rebellion against God. You see, sin is not just, oh, we miss the mark a little bit, but we're basically good people. No, sin is we're in all-out rebellion against God. We're telling God, I know better than you. I know what is right and good. You don't know anything, God. I'm going to do this my own way. That's what sin is. Even as believers, when we, when we sin, when we break God's commandments, when we go against His will, that's what we're saying. We're saying, oh, your, your son has come. He's died for me. But you know what, God? I, I know what's better. I know what's best for me in my life. I'm going to live my own way. That's what sin is. It is all out rebellion against God. But Jesus rescues us from sin. He rescues us from a hard heart towards the Lord. He rescues us from wanting to do things our own way and to follow the will of the Lord. He rescues us from self-glory to a desire to glorify God. 
Not only does he rescue us from sin, but he rescues us from Satan. He's no longer our master, but now the Father is our master. And he rescues us from death. In Christ, we have life. And Jesus' resurrection proves that we will have life. We will not experience eternal death. We will not experience separation from the Father. We will have life abundant in His kingdom to come. The Lord's Supper then is a picture of the Gospel. It represents a new exodus. It represents a rescue that that Jesus provides from sin, Satan, and death. But you know, just like those in Egypt, we must believe Jesus' sacrifice to save it is, is what saves us in order to experience this salvation. You see, if the people in Egypt did not put the blood on the door, they didn't believe what God had to say. They didn't believe that this is how they were going to be rescued from death. And so we must do the same as well. We must appropriate Jesus' blood to our life. We must appropriate it so that it covers us by believing that Jesus is the one who rescues us. Not our works, not our money, not our status, not anything else, but it is Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice alone. Our works mean nothing to God in relation to our salvation. It is all Jesus' work on our behalf. We must believe that in order for that to be appropriated to our life. If we don't do that, then Jesus' sacrifice means nothing to us, just like the lamb's sacrifice in Israel meant nothing to them that night in Egypt. And so what do you believe this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? Have you repented of, of your sins? Are you following Jesus today? You see, God's wrath is coming. Will it pass over you Because you're covered in Jesus' blood like it passed over those homes who had the blood on the doorposts. Will you experience the blessing of the future supper? And the future supper. What future supper are are we talking about? Well, Well, that brings us to our last question. To what future event does the Lord's Supper point? In verse 25, Jesus makes a promise. Look at what he says. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I will not drink of this wine until he drinks it in the new kingdom, the kingdom of God that is to come. And with this promise, Jesus points forward to the time when we will gather together at another supper, another time of celebration that will take place in his kingdom. And the celebration is known as the marriage supper of of the Lamb. You read about this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. The text says, this is John speaking, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So Jesus 
promises that there will be another time of celebration in the future. A time after He has defeated our enemies. A time when, when Jesus will reign over all things. A time when He will celebrate with His disciples in this great feast known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we have to look forward to. That is the event to which the Lord's Supper points. Jesus once again presiding over a meal with all of his disciples gathered there at table celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And if we bring all this together, we see then that the Lord's Supper is significant because it causes us to remember Jesus' past sacrifice on the cross as well as it points forward to Jesus' future reign and rule in his new kingdom. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we are celebrating. We are celebrating and we are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is our Savior. That Jesus indeed is victorious. That He alone has the right to reign and rule. And that one day we will live under His perfect reign and rule in this perfect world. That's what we are proclaiming when we come together as a church and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This then is not just a time for us to, to, to choke down some dry cracker and then try to, to wash it down with a little shot of juice. No, it is much more than that. It is much more significant than that. It is a meal of celebration. It is a meal of proclamation. That's not all the supper is. Before we finish, I want to make one last point, and that is this, the supper is a family meal, and I've already alluded to this earlier in our message is a family meal the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are part of the family when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior well we become a part of the family a family of believers and we may be from different races we may be from different nationalities we may be from different backgrounds and socioeconomic status but but Jesus cuts through all of that and he brings all peoples together into a family and it's the family that is invited to eat this meal. That means that the supper is not for those who are unbelievers. It is a family meal. If you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you're outside of the family. And this meal makes that clear, distinctive line. That means that you should not partake of the supper this morning if you would not proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior. With that being said, that doesn't mean that the Lord's Supper is not significant to those who are non-believers. It points you to the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is indeed your substitute, that His death and that His sacrifice can stand as your death and your sacrifice. It points you to to access to the family. It's through Jesus that we enter into the family of God. And while Jesus' family is exclusive, Jesus' family is also radically inclusive. It is open to those who would believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You don't have to be of a certain race or certain nationality. You don't have to, to go anywhere or do anything as far as a pilgrimage goes. You don't have to have a certain amount of money. It is radically inclusive in that all those, all peoples everywhere who believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior can enter into the family. And so if you aren't a believer here today, let the supper be a witness to you. Let it be a picture of the good news of Jesus to you this morning. Let it draw you to Jesus, to the gospel 
to the good news that He is the Savior of the world. Not only is it reserved for those who are members of the family, but it is also limited to those who are united family members. In order to come to the table and eat, we must be unified. We must be a cohesive family unit. We can't be harboring sin or, or holding a grudge or mad at another and still expect to sit down and eat with them. No, we're not going to do that. Instead, we must be unified with one another in order to eat. And lastly, family meals are limited to those who aren't harboring unrepentant sin. If you are knowingly engaging in sinful activities and you refuse to repent of that sin, your relationship with the Father is hindered. And until you mend that relationship with the Father, you too should not take of the Lord's Supper. For as Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, you may be eating and drinking wrath on yourself because you are presuming on the grace of God. And so the Lord's Supper not only reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice and His future reign, but it also reminds us that we are to deal with family relationships and unrepentant sin in our lives. And this morning, if you fall into any of those categories, when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, let me ask that you would allow these elements to pass. Instead of eating and imbibing, spend time in repentance, spend time in prayer. And if you're an unbeliever, spend time thinking about what Jesus' sacrifice means to the world. And if you happen to be sitting next to someone who does not partake this morning, don't build yourself up. Don't look smugly at them and say, they don't have it together like I do. Instead, pray for them. They're obviously dealing with something in their lives and so we must pray for them now with all of that being said I invite you to take of the supper and that's going to be our time of response this morning a fitting time of response to partake of the Lord's Supper